0: So I read all of the readings for this Sunday. You'd hope that I would. (laughs) But I I read them and thought, you know what, I'm going to preach on all of them because they all have something to say. But here uh, about themes that may be related. The first reading is a famous story, the beginning of a famous story. And it is about power. It's about, I, I think it's about the internal processes that people go through who are in positions of power, whether it be absolute or not, and how they think they can, what they think they can do, when they when they're vested with this power, and maybe in a funny sense, there's a certain kind of innocence with regard to the way in which they exercise this uh, bad behavior, because they think that somehow it's just part of being what, who they are. Um, I'll say more about that in a minute, but I'm going to talk about power. I'm going to talk about in Ephesians and in the Gospel from John, we have two issues that are very important. One is uh, the sovereignty of God and how we as Episcopalians may understand that issue of the sovereignty of God. What Paul thinks about the sovereignty of God, how he may have been mischaracterized by the Protestant reformers in the 16th century, And also, in John's Gospel, how God's sovereignty plays itself out in the person of Jesus Christ and the expression of the sovereignty of God in terms of God's abundant care and abiding presence. I did a little research this week, and uh, I've said this to you before. If you want to read the Bible and you want to start and do it in a good way that's interesting... In the Old Testament, you should read First uh, and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. They're good reads and they're good stories. Second Samuel, 2 Samuel uh, chapters nine through twenty, and maybe part of Second Kings, and some parts of chapter eight in Second Samuel are called in biblical scholarship the throne succession narratives. And what that means is that they're the stories of the beginning of how King David, who will represent even after this period uh, the Halcyon days of Israel, he and Solomon, that it is the story of now how this begins to go bad and how we think about the succession uh, of the throne. In other words, the people who wrote these stories were more concerned, not in one sense, about the moral lapse. We'll see in a moment of David and other of the kings, but more about what are the implications for this politically and socially in terms of Israel. How are we going to, who's going to succeed them and how are we going to have the kind of continuity that we need to have in order to keep our place uh, in the economy of the Middle East and uh, in uh, in the situation on the ground. But the interesting thing that I was reminded of is that that chapters 9 through 20 in 2 Samuel represent some of the finest classical Hebrew prose in the Hebrew Bible. And what's important about this is that, uh, first of all, it gives uh, students of, of the Hebrew language some idea of what it can really be like, but it also means that when first and second Samuel and first and second Kings as an example were now put into their final form by a group of people we call in biblical scholarship now the deuteronomists when they put this in the final form they didn't touch it they did very very little if any editing to this because of the quality of the language the other interesting thing is that the people who wrote this story and these stories uh, wrote them less than a generation after David's death, which means that they are very, very accurate appraisals of the political situation, of the facts on the ground, and of the circumstances in which David uh, operated during that period of time. So the Deuteronomists didn't touch it. They did, they did very little everything how do we know all this well you know people who study this sort of thing read the texts they look uh, at do the textual criticism they read the manuscripts that are extant and they make some some uh, do some stuff about how that how that works and these are the conclusions that they come to so what you're hearing today is fairly reliable information about the historical situation on the ground as reliable as it can get uh, at this at this remove david is in, he's in Jerusalem. They're all out fighting. There's a very dispassionate description of this story, isn't there? It's very sort of, uh, they're sort of step back from this in a, in a way. And David sees Bathsheba taking a bath. And then the next thing, you know, it all happens. <laughs> 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 it, right? The later writers want to make sure that we know that the law has been observed because Bathsheba is taking a bath after her period, so David won't have any, you know, consort with her in a way that they all go. The rabbi, like this, you know, what in the world is seizing this guy? So he um, connect, he hooks up with Bathsheba, as they would say these days, right? And um, the next thing you know, Uriah the Hittite comes back and he f- says, "This, is, you know, it reads sort of like one of these NBC situation, doesn't it? He says, I, I'm going to have to send him back to his house. Well, I guess this, this guy, Uriah the Hittite, is whatever the ancient Near East version of a squared away marine would be or something. And he's not going home because his, his fellow... Uh, Soldiers are in battle, and he's maintaining himself uh, in, in this sort of uh, combat-ready mode. So that doesn't happen. And in any case, David then says, well, when he go, take this letter back to your commander, Joab, I think it is. And, uh, you know, re- he'll read the letter, and he gets some instructions from me, which is send Uriah the Hittite into the worst part of the battle, and then draw back from him so that he will be killed. It, it, it is a moral lapse of the, of, of the greatest type, isn't it? Yeah. It makes us feel uh, r- really deflated about David. He's, he, here all the promise of Israel was vested in this guy, and he, he does this. Uh, we've had some political scandals over the years. Let's say in the last 20 years in this country... And there is a thread that I think runs through them, and this is not my analysis, but I've read about this in, you know, the New York Review of Books or interviews in in places about some of these leaders that had enjoyed uh, popularity in this country and then pulled stunts that surprised us. And one of the comments that they seem to make in all the cases is that when somebody, you know, has a succession of, you know, marching from strength to strength, Getting elected, feeling you know like they've they've uh, achieved things and they're they're uh, successful. They sort of feel like some of them they can treat themselves, <laughs> right? Maybe, you know, or that they're sort of above all of this, and they'll be able in some way through various uh, methods to uh, dilute the reaction in a way that will be less harmful to them. And you know, uh, in a way, they do. Because a, a lot of people do survive this. Bill Clinton survived it in a sense. I guess Governor Sanford is probably gonna survive this in a sense. So things will keep moving forward in that way but what we'll discover is this always is the beginning of the end in one form or another. And what this story is about is the beginning of the end for King David. He will not be removed as king. God is not going to punish him in a way that you, he will, but it will be in ways that aren't sort of the final blow but um, one, one uh, a set of adversity after another. One of the things they'll say is the sword never leaves Israel. Now he is continuously, and perpetually at war, and will be after this. The boy that, they, that he and Bathsheba have will die. He gets a fever and dies. And Nathan the prophet tells him this boy isn't going to live. So they lose the, that child. And there will be a whole lot of difficulties about the succession, where Solomon will end up as as, uh, the king, and he's not the next in line. So sometimes I was thinking, you know, the 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 exercise of of our power, uh, even if it's absolute, is at the very least a mixed bag. And that some of the consequences that we we, uh, uh, suffer are really the result of of the processes that we set in motion ourselves to produce uh, this difficulty. And it's always from the standpoint that it's all up to us and that God doesn't figure in the equation, that we're the ones who are responsible in some way for making the success that we have. We tend always to be unwilling often to see the serendipitous occurrences uh, that have brought us to a position that we find ourselves in. I have to be perfectly honest with you that when I first came to St. Luke's Church and came to live in the Silicon Valley, one of the things that struck me after being here for about a year was that a lot of very, very successful people in the high-tech world gave no credence at all or never, ever admitted that they, in some ways, were, it, that serendipity, positive serendipity, had worked for them in spades. Right? Right? I also come to realize that serendipity is, can be negative. There's a, and I believe over the last year and a half in this country, we have suffered under a lot of negative serendipity. <laughs> it's, been, it's been true. So sometimes uh, not acknowledging the sovereignty of God in a way that is affirmative uh, may be a mistake. I also just felt duty-bound to say this because I looked it up. Lord, act said, most people misquote him. Most people say, all power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's not what he said. He said, all power tends to corrupt. Absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. And when you add tens, that means that there is some element of being able to pull back from uh, an unbridled exercise of absolute power, or power in any kind of way. And I think he qualified it on purpose. That's just, that's just a little, you know, factoid. I don't know what you want to do with it, but anyway. Um, this is about how we use the power we have in big and small ways in an affirmative way and for the upbuilding of relational life and not for its, uh, the self-seeking or self-aggrandizing part of the exercise of power. What I'm saying is very easy to say and very hard to do. You know, when our ego gets mixed up in this and we feel entitlement and uh, a kind of overweening sense of our, of our uh, talents and abilities. And, and so uh, I remember the court testimony of Jay Gould, one of the great robber barons or whatever they call him back in the 1860s or 70s. And the attorney asked him on the stand in New York City, Mr. Gould, didn't you know what you were doing was against the law? And he said, the law? Ain't I above the law? <laughs> he was, that was a serious question that he was asking. Because he felt that sense of entitlement and somehow that his power was, uh, uh, he was owed uh, the, the, the privileges that he had. So that's, this begins now some readings. We'll have Nathan the prophet next week and some other things. Some wonderful stories about uh, uh, exercising power in that way. Last week I mentioned, or the week before, that Ephesians, in the mind of uh, a, a, a fairly good group percentage of biblical scholars, believe that uh, Paul did not write Ephesians, that it was written by one of his students or one of his followers. And you may say, well, who cares? And uh, the important thing is is that, that the advantage of, of, of thinking in that way, actually, is that you can begin to see the, the processes of development and coming to terms with the challenges and the opportunities of these communities that Paul founded uh, after his death, after his martyrdom in 62, and how they now are coming to terms with in their own communities the issues that are in front of them. Today, it's really about the power of habitual recollection and the belief in the sovereignty of God. And that God's sovereignty is understood in this passage not as uh, the exercise of absolute power by God, but rather God's abiding presence. And the reciprocal aspect of this in terms of the gratitude that the individual soul responds with to God and the empowerment they therefore receive through their prayer and their centeredness To be able to bring health and wholeness to the world. So here's the thing. Uh, During the magisterial Reformation in Europe, you know the major churches. There's something else called the Radical Reformation, but I'm talking about Luther and Calvin and and so on. They had this big thing about God's sovereignty because they believed, I think, in an in a way that was over the top. That's my personal opinion. They went too far. But they believed we need to focus on the sovereignty of God and God's absolute omnipotence, omniscience, and eternal, and and, and, uh, uh, existing in eternity, in order to get over the view that there was some institutional mediator between the individual and God. Right? The church. Now, in the official teaching of the church, nobody ever said that except ignoramuses who didn't understand what was said by the early people who wrote about things like this. <coughs> so, they believed that we needed now to focus on God's sovereignty. And what it boils down to, and certainly in some species of Christianity these days, God's sovereignty means that you are now being held... In some sort of situation where, if you make a big mistake, there's going to be big trouble and plenty of it. And God has control over you in the way that Jonathan Edwards talked about when he dangled the spider over the candlestick: sinners in the hands of an angry God. Well, you know, that outlook has given people big worries, haven't I mean, you? You're a pastor for any amount of time. There's at least one a couple of them sitting here. They know that they've had to work with people who have been uh, damaged by that, that overweening sense of the sovereignty of God. So I wanted to use this opportunity in this sermon to speak about a more affirmative way that Paul or his disciple understood God's sovereignty as uh, the presence and the power of God's love. And of the ability always to access the spirit of God. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. So that that is how we might understand God's sovereignty. Not as a judging and punishing being, uh, but as a God who, who loves us, forgives us, and accepts us unconditionally. All four of the Gospels in the New Testament... Have the story of the feeding of the multitude or the feeding of the 5,000. And I've mentioned this a number of times. Matthew, Mark, and Luke come out of a, a tradition called the Synoptic Tradition. So they have the same sources, tell the same stories, and so forth. The, the writings attributed to John come from a different tradition and a different thread or strand or use this. Trajectory, mm-hmm. <laughs> <In New Testament. laughs> right? If you tell that, the people that go, gee, where do they get all this stuff? <laughs> so even John's Gospel rehearses the story of the feeding of the multitude, but in the Revised Common Lectionary, there's something that they do to it, which maybe needs to be explained. Jesus feeds the multitude in John's Gospel, and he needs to get away because they're going to turn him into a king. And he goes away by himself, and the other disciples get in a boat, and they're rowing, and all of a sudden there's sort of a storm that comes up, and they look up, and here's Jesus walking on the water. So there's a point being made, isn't there, by John about this. First of all, as this pertains to the sovereignty of God, it has something to do with a creation that God made and is a creation of abundance. This is very hard to say in the midst of the circumstances in which we find ourselves now in this country. And I think cyclically that may always be true. But the default position of Christian people is that the values of the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the healthy relational life that we're called to bring in the world produces an, a, a situation of abundance, both materially and spiritually. And this story is a story about how God feeds people, both spiritually and physically. And in this reading today, it is connected with Jesus walking on the water, which would recall, for the audience who heard this story, the uh, Moses. Moses, who has dominion over the sea through God, and Moses, who feeds the people of Israel in the wilderness, in a situation of lack, in a situation of deprivation. And now Jesus is here, and he is doing the same thing. He separates himself from uh, the people who he fed. And he is separated himself because they wanted him to be for them the new Moses. They put two and two together immediately when they saw what was operating. And so the later story of him walking on the water is further support for this subtext that they all would have known in the thought world of their time. Now, if you read this in Greek... When Jesus says, as he's walking on the water and the disciples are afraid that something's going to happen, he says, why are you afraid? And in the uh, NRSV it says, it is I. And in the Greek text it says, I am. He uses the, the word for God from Exodus about who he is. And remember when Moses is at the burning bush and he gets his orders and he said, Who shall I say sent me? And the burning bush, the voice in the burning bush says, You tell them that I am sent you. Being. Thought thinking itself. Whatever you want to call it. God sent him. And so those who read this story and heard this story read to them said, Oh, we get this. And as we begin to think about this, this affirmation will occur now always in the context of God's abiding, abundant care and love, physically and spiritually. So those these stories are about how we understand God's sovereignty, I think, uh, in an affirmative way. So perhaps the lesson for this week or the assignment might be Uh, All of you are vested with some form of power and prerogative in what you do. See if you can use it in a godly fashion. And maybe it's a good idea to understand that God's sovereignty is present to you to help you do that. Not to have you shirk your responsibility nor to use your power in a responsible way. God knows we need people who have power to be able to move this country in a way that is more godly than it is now. Doesn't seem to be rocket science to try and figure that out. So maybe that's what the, these biblical texts are telling us to do this week in big and small ways. Amen. Amen. Coffee. I made a mistake. I was trying to turn it off, but I don't. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, because it's locked, you see. Yes.